0: Good evening, everyone. So thankful you could join us for this virtual online worship. You know, we've added back Sunday morning and Wednesday evening, and the hope is that very soon we'll be able to add back our Sunday night service and that we can all be together. Until that time, though, we we encourage you to stay connected over the phone or, or other ways. We don't want to practice social distancing. In a physical sense, we want to still be social, but maybe we have to do that in different ways, whether it's texting, calling, whatever it may be. We're so glad that you're joining us tonight. You know, back in the mid-90s, prosecutor Christopher Darden had the unenviable task of trying to convince a 12-member public jury that a public icon was guilty of double murder. That's not an easy thing to do because O.J. Simpson was beloved He was in that upper echelon reserved for the most revered athletes and personalities. He was larger than life with his big smile and his engaging personality. Some people wouldn't believe it no matter how much evidence was thrown out there. Simpson was so loved that some could not see his faults, and some would never believe that he was capable of such a heinous crime. And so Christopher Darden had the odds stacked against him. And so that's why he said in his closing statement to the jury, these words, he says, it's not the actor who is on trial today, ladies and gentlemen. It is not the public face. It is his other face. What a chilling statement, right? You think about that statement, that phrase, his other face, a face that was hidden from the general public, a face that that Christopher Darwin was trying to bring to light the face that almost no one else sees. And I I don't know about you, but that phrase hits home with me. I can relate to this having another face. Many times I've had people come up to me and especially here at Oldham Lane after a church service, after a sermon and say, hey Chris, that that was great. Thank you so much. I appreciate you so much. And they say all these nice things about me. They send me these, these cards and have all these glowing accolades. And I think to myself, if you only knew me, If you really knew me, you wouldn't think that. I'm so tough on myself, and and I have this other face I feel like, a face that I don't want to show to anybody else, a face that, you know, loses its temper, one that can uh, maybe not be as patient as he should be with others, saying things that I shouldn't, There are things about me that I absolutely despise, and so I know about this other face. And all too often, I can relate to the words of Paul in Romans chapter 7, beginning of verse 15, where he writes, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Many years ago, a London newspaper encouraged the public to write in their answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? And writer, philosopher, and theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote in with this simple response. I am. Do you ever feel like you're your own worst enemy? Do you keep getting in your own way? Can you relate to the words of Paul that we just read? For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You've heard the saying, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Sometimes our enemy is as close as it can get. Feeling with our feelings getting under our skin, taking over our minds and threatening to sabotage our spiritual livelihood. Many of us are, are kind of double agents, innocently disguised as someone who wishes the best for ourselves but betrays our own self at every turn. And here's the thing about enemies. An enemy is intolerant. By definition, an enemy wants to destroy, utterly destroy his opponent. Typically, there is a hatred for the other side. The enemy despises what, what you stand for. He may have a hatred for your beliefs. He most likely feels that you are a threat or that you have something that he wants. And my guess is that you have no problem coming up with certain things about you that you hate or that you dislike. In fact, you can do this at home sometime. You can think about the things that you don't like about yourself. It'll probably take you only about 10 seconds then look into a reflective surface and what do you see? You see you, right? So many times we are what we despise. But you can't exactly run from yourself. You can't exactly retreat from yourself. So what can you do? Well, as a general rule, what you resist will persist. So you recognize and accept what can be changed. You accept what it is about yourself that you dislike. And then you seek to do something about it. An enemy also promotes propaganda. Every warring nation needs a propaganda department. Every army needs a propaganda department. Using cruel and dehumanizing language helps us in the fight with our enemy. Also, the spread of propaganda persuades people to buy in to the common enemy. So what kind of language do you use on yourself? What kind of propaganda do you sell to yourself? What kind of hate speech do you speak about yourself? You say things like, well, I'm such an idiot. I'm such a failure. I'm, I'm not good enough. All that sound familiar? How about letting the voice of God be the loudest in your life? How about letting Him define you? He's your ally, and that's the only way you can defeat the enemy is with your ally fighting with you. Also, an enemy exploits your weakness. You know, your opponent is typically going to attack where you're you're uncovered or where maybe you're the most vulnerable. Whatever your weakness is, your opponent will tend to exploit it. You tend to focus on the things about yourself that don't measure up in your own mind. Do you dwell on your shortcomings? Do you worry about what everyone else thinks? Do you strive to live up to some unreasonable standard? There's this this thing called the 20-40-60 rule, and it goes like this. At age 20, you're sure that everyone is thinking about you. By the time you turn 40, you start to realize that people care less about you than you thought they did. And by the time you hit 60, you realize nobody was ever thinking about you anyway. As a general rule, people are too busy being their own worst enemy to worry about your own shortcomings. And finally, an enemy never forgives. We tend to replay our worst moments on an endless loop in high def. Only your sworn enemy has that kind of time. There's a reason that the rearview mirror is smaller than the windshield. Don't spend all of your time looking back. Learn from the past, but don't live in it. Don't sabotage the present and the future by letting the past hold you back. Did you notice in Romans chapter 7 that Paul wasn't speaking in the past tense? He wasn't talking about his battle with his sinful nature in the past or before he became a Christian. No, he was speaking in the present tense. This civil war, this tug of war that was raging inside of him was constant. It was ongoing and it was happening to him in the here and now. And we all know this. We all know about the struggle and dealing with this inward, inward civil war. And we know that once we become a Christian, Satan doesn't leave us alone. We know that there are still attacks. We know that there's still temptation and there are still things that we have to deal with. And we know what we should be doing. Yet we find it difficult to do. To do what we know is extremely difficult. We know the wrong we should be avoiding. We know the opportunities that we have missed. And because of this, we feel guilt and shame, regret, hurt, disappointment, and it creates this vicious cycle, right? The more wrong I do, the less valuable I feel. And the less valuable I feel, the less reason I have to stop doing the wrong. And the more wrong I do, the more worthless I feel. And since, the, since I feel so worthless, it really doesn't matter what I do, so I just keep doing wrong. And over and over, we complete this cycle and we continue it, kind of like a little hamster running on a wheel. It may have seemed enjoyable at the beginning, but then it becomes work, it becomes exercise, and we can't get off of it. And what's the one piece of advice that so many people will give as to breaking the cycle? We just need to exercise some self-control. You just need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and and work harder. Many of us know what self-control is mainly because of our lack of it. We speak before we think, we have a short fuse, we we eat too much, we shop too much, we give in to all sorts of cravings and impulses because we can't seem to say no to ourselves. We know all about self-control, mostly because of our lack of it at times, and yet our knowledge and life experience doesn't seem to make it easier for us. We just find ourselves trapped on that hamster wheel. It's kind of like the woman who joined a diet club for support. She had made her family's favorite cake over the weekend and she reported to the group that, she, that, that half of it was eaten at dinner. The next day she said that she kept staring at the other half until finally she gave in and cut a little slice for herself One slice led to another until she ate the entire rest of that half of the cake, and she knew her family, her husband mainly, would be disappointed in her, and someone in the group asked, well, so what did you tell your husband when he confronted you about it? She goes, oh, I didn't tell him anything. I just baked another cake and ate half of it. Some would assess that situation and say, you know what, you just need to do better. You just need to try harder. You just need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and start doing. You've got to be mentally tough. You need to need to get some willpower. You need to grit your teeth and show some determination. And sometimes that is the recipe for success. Some people just need a swift kick in the pants, but that's not what we're talking about this evening. In the Greek, the word self-control is ekritia, and it comes from the word kratos, which means strength, and it is synonymous with temperance. It refers to power over oneself or, or self-mastery. In a general sense, it means mastery over our passions and desires. It is the virtue that holds our appetites in check. It also means one holding himself in. Thayer describes it as the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. William Barclay, the commentator, says, It is the Spirit which has overcome and controlled its desires and its love of pleasure. When Paul wrote that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, he was speaking about the ability to control or govern oneself and keep one's passions, emotions, and desires under control. Self-control is like a dam across a river. The river running freely is sometimes peaceful, but it can cause major destruction as well if it's not harnessed. It can destroy everything in its path, and the dam, much like self-control, holds the river back. It restrains it, it controls it, and with the dam in place, now the water can be enjoyed for recreation and irrigation and power generation, even drinking water. Its destructive force is harnessed and its beneficial force is released. You know, God made us emotional creatures, He has given us the ability to feel emotions. These emotions, in and of themselves, aren't wrong, they're just like tools in a toolbox. And how we use those tools is going to make all the difference going forward. You know, for instance, an axe can be a very useful tool, like for chopping down a tree, but it can also be a very harmful weapon. Hedge clippers are great for trimming your bushes. You don't want to cut the grass with them. Certain tools have certain functions and are beneficial for particular jobs. And likewise, our desires and emotions, when used carefully and wisely, can make life more efficient, more effective. But like a good set of power tools, we have to learn to control them and use them properly. For instance, hunger is necessary for survival. But if not kept in check, it can lead to gluttony, right? Sexual desire is not a bad thing, but when one acts on it outside the confines of marriage, it becomes destructive. The need for rest and relaxation is vital. However, we can take that too far and become lazy. Fear is an emotion that can motivate us to seek safety when harm comes our way, but fear can also turn into something that that is unhealthy and paralyzes us and incapacitates us. You get the idea. Our problem with self-control is that we narrow it down and we don't look at it from a holistic view. Our problem with self-control can be narrowed down to one fatal flaw, and that is we've made self-control a personal issue when the key to self-control is giving up control. The same Paul who wrote Romans chapter 7 also wrote this in Galatians 5, Starting in verse 16, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the flesh are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So again, Paul describes this war between the flesh and the Spirit, and it all boils down to this. Who is leading you? You know, the ancient philosopher Plato talked about the absurdity of self-control when he asked, Isn't the phrase self-mastery absurd? I mean, anyone who is his own master is also his own slave and vice versa, since it is the same person who is the subject. Plato brings up an interesting question. Who is the self that is in control? I mean, aren't we talking about the control of self by the self for the sake of self? That can be rather confusing, can it? But oftentimes, this is the general thought concerning self-control. We're too narrow in our focus. We think we control ourselves so as not to do anything bad. We think of self-control as mind over matter or reason versus the flesh. Self-control is all about willpower and mental toughness and gritting your teeth and pulling yourselves up by the bootstraps and being determined not to give in so that you can feel better about yourself. But self-control involves so much more than just sheer willpower. It has to because your won't power is always going to be stronger than your willpower. Hour anyway. When Paul lists the various aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, he's not talking about mind over matter. He's not talking about reason versus flesh. He's talking about controlling the self by letting God be in control of your life. He's speaking of what is produced when one is Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. Notice verse 16 again. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul's talking about the Spirit of God taking control of our lives. Paul's not demanding us to be loving. He's not demanding that we be joyful or at peace or patient. He's not saying that in order to walk by the Spirit of God, you have to attain these attributes. No, what he's saying is, live by the Spirit, and you will experience these things in your life. This is what one who walks by the Spirit can expect to produce in their lives. It's not about fighting the flesh for the sake of personal gratification. It's, it's about letting God help us manage ourselves. Paul's not talking about personal accomplishment or personal achievement here. He's talking about what can be accomplished when you remove yourself from the driver's seat Self-control is not the result of just making up our minds that we're going to work harder and do better. It's not just about willpower. It's not just about exhibiting self-control at certain times and in certain areas of your life. It's not about gritting your teeth or pulling yourselves up by the bootstraps. In fact, it's not about you at all. It's not about you. Self-control is about giving up control. Self-control is about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and it's about what is produced when the Spirit fills you and leads you. It's about strength under control. It's about cultivating something radically different than what the world around you is selling. Notice verses 25 and 26 again. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Do you know what we naturally produce when we are in control of our own lives or when we try to take control you know what's naturally produced the things that Paul mentions if we want to produce godly things righteous things then we must we must allow ourselves to be filled and you've heard me say this before but I think it bears repeating you cannot fill something unless it is empty first you cannot simply filter out the bad in your life and expect that to be enough. You have to replace it with something else. It kind of reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verses 24 and following. Now, not exactly the same context that we're talking about, but I think there's a principle here that applies. Jesus teaches us that it's not enough to just filter out the bad or drive out the evil. Good must come in because it does no good to remove the bad behavior if you're not going to fill what is left with something good. Being a baptized believer with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential for salvation, but there are Christians who have received the Holy Spirit at baptism that are not filled with the Spirit today. They're not living spiritual lives. They're not patient. They're not joyful. They're not self-controlled. They're not faithful. They're not kind. They They may be full of something, but they're definitely not filled with the Holy Spirit. There may have been an indwelling, but there's no filling. It's not enough, you see, to be immersed. You must empty yourself first before you can be completely filled. A company that manufactures car brakes came up with this slogan. Without control, there can be no freedom. And how true is that? True freedom comes from giving up control. Once again, it was Paul who said this in Galatians 2, 19 and 20. For through the law, I died to the law. So that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. What a beautiful summation of everything that we have talked about. To surrender your life to the point that it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives who lives in you. You see, self-control, as it applies to the Christian, is really kind of a misnomer because it's not about self at all. It's not about you. It's all about God. It's all about the Holy Spirit. It's about Christ. It's about God control, not self-control, because when you give your life to Him, it is no longer about you anyway. It's about Him, and it's about what He can do through you. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day. The opportunity that we've had to worship you, we thank you so much for your love and grace and mercy, your forgiveness. God, help us to be more like Jesus. Help us to be filled. May we seek to live as you would have us to live, at the center of your will. And may we produce something that is so different from the world around us, that people notice it and want to know where it comes from. May we shine your light. May we magnify your name in all that we do. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.